From the in-town Jewish Academy in Atlanta, Georgia, I am Rabbi Ari Solish, and this is Knowledge on the Deeper Side. In this podcast, we discuss the most inspiring and stimulating Jewish ideas, ideas that challenge the way you think and feel. To sponsor a class or episode, please visit intownjewishacademy.org slash sponsor. And now, on to the episode. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Torah Studies. It is great to see you all. It's great to celebrate Donna's birthday, Yom Huladat Sameach. May it be a wonderful year of blessings and happiness and joy and study and growth and all that good stuff. All right, so let's begin with the Torah portion this week. Torah portion is Pinchas. Now, we're going to, take, we're going to make a bit of a departure from our typical conversation because, and I'll tell you what I mean. Typically, what we do is we cover, we discuss, we explore the Torah portion. This week, we're going to explore the Half Torah, which is the section from the Book of Prophets that is read. You got it, Parkin? Yes. Amazing. The section from the Book of Prophets that's read after the Torah portion is read in synagogues around the world. So just a bit of background on this. Um, it goes back many years it goes back many years to a decree that was put against the Jewish people. Um, and the decree was such that um, the Jews were not allowed to read the Torah publicly. And because of that, so the, the, the Jewish people at that time, the Jewish community, I think it was probably the Romans that, typically Romans did all these rules, went in doubt, blame the Romans, and uh, yeah, they couldn't read the Torah publicly, which was a tradition from the times of Moses. Um, and and uh, so what did they do? So instead, they couldn't read the five books of Moses. Instead, they, they selected sections from the books of the prophets that spoke about a similar theme, and they read that instead, and that became the reading that they did publicly on Shabbat. Well, after the ban was annulled, what happened was the Jews were able to read the Torah portion once again from the five books of Moses, from the scrolls, but since they had, you know, they had appended, or sorry, not appended, since they, um, they had instituted this idea of reading from, from the book of the prophets, so they kept it going and they put it as an append, as a, uh, appendix, as it were, to the Torah reading itself. So, therefore, in short, to kind of summarize, in synagogues on Shabbat, we read the entire Torah portion from the, from the Torah scroll, we lift it up, close it up, wrap it up, you know, put it, uh, close it up, wrap it up, and then we pull out another book, and we read a smaller section from the books of the prophets, not from a scroll, at least most synagogues use a book, not a scroll, some use a scroll. We use uh, Chabad customers to use a book, we read it from the, book of the, from the book of the prophets, and it is a section that has been selected from uh, many, many years ago that somehow resembles, relates to, parallels, mirrors, the Torah portion. Make sense? Okay, that's the way it is most of the year. From this week on, things are different. From, obviously. From this week on, everything is different. For the next several weeks, actually until Rosh Hashanah, from now until the new year, the Haftorah is going to be different. It's not going to resemble the theme of the part. You <laughs> jump in. This is how we like it. It's not going to resemble the theme of the Torah portion it's going to talk about issues related to the time period we find ourselves in. What time do we find ourselves in? So I'll tell you. 
Right now, we, we're in a time known as the three weeks. The three weeks. What are the three weeks? Sounds very ominous, the three weeks. It is on, ominous. The three weeks are the three weeks between the 17th of Tammuz and the 9th day of Av. It's exactly three weeks from 17 Tammuz to 9 Av. The 17th of Tammuz is the day that the Romans breached the walls of Jerusalem in the year 69. Three weeks later, the temple was, was destroyed and burning. The second temple was destroyed and burning. So these three weeks are, are three weeks of mourning where we're introspective and we think about uh, the exile that we're in and what we've lost, the temple, the, the, the glory, the grandeur of the Jewish people and Judaism, etc., and, and how we yearn for that once again with the coming of Mashiach, may be speed in our days. Amen. We were a week behind. In the Torah portion, we're a week behind. We're still a week behind until, 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 until maybe next week. Then we catch up. But either way, Israel here, the three weeks is the same. In other words, the three weeks that we're, we're experiencing right now, everyone's equaling the three weeks. And by the way, I mentioned this on Shabbat here at Chabad, but I'll mention this, uh, this, this here at the class. The three weeks are certain things that we don't do. Traditionally, we don't do certain things during the three weeks to, to, to demonstrate that we're in a, a, a somewhat of a mourning state. We don't take haircuts because that causes extreme joy. No, I mean, it's like, okay, we don't get haircuts. Um, That's like an affliction in Yom Kippur. That's what, you know. Those right, so these types of things, right? Like the, a little deprivation type thing with the hair grow. Um, I'll, blame, I'll blame it on the three weeks. My hair. Uh, <laughs> so no haircuts, no weddings, no concerts, no like celebratory events, that sort of thing. We try to minimize the joy. All right, that's the general general. When the nine days hits from Rosh Chodesh, from the first, uh, we have to take a shot every time uh, we talk about a prohibition. I'm kidding. I'm <laughs> joking. This is the Yom Kippur drinking game. What? Yom Kippur drinking game. What? That's... <laughs> Someone should market that Yom Kippur drinking game. Everyone would love to play the Yom Kippur drinking game. Not an empty stomach. Anyway, Chaim. It's Passover. Exactly. Oh, Passover. Oh, my gosh. Four cups. Holy cow. Five All right. Elijah. Yeah, well, Elijah's not driving. All right, back to our story. Back to our story. So, from the nine days, uh, sorry, from, the, from Rosh Chodesh, the first day of Av, through the ninth of Av, those nine days, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, those are even a stronger level of mourning. And in those days, we minimize in, we don't eat meat or drink wine except for Shabbat. And we don't, we, we cut down on this, on the enjoyment and, um, what's the word I'm looking for? In pleasurable activities, we cut down even more. So we find ourselves during the three weeks right now, leading up to the ninth of Av. By the way, our hope is Mashiach comes and so we don't have to fast in the ninth of Av because who has time for that, Right? goes by so fast. I'm kidding. Fast pun? All right. Anyway, the point is that three weeks, we think about the temple, and then after that, we have another seven. So the Haftorahs, the Haftorahs for these three weeks all relate to the temple's destruction. And then, in other words, it doesn't pertain to the Torah portion, it relates to the time of year we find ourselves in. And then, after Tisha B'Av, after the ninth of Av, the next seven weeks of Haftorahs relate to 
the idea of rebuilding the temple and, and a prophecy of redemption and return. And it, it, it's kind of like, the, it, there, so there's three of impending doom, like build up to destruction, and then seven of comfort that follow the ninth of Av. It would be set three of affliction, seven of comfort, and then, and then two more about getting ready for Rosh Hashanah. And that's it. And then Rosh Hashanah is here. Happy holidays. Right? So, so for the next, it's late. Yeah, it's very late this year. So for the next 12 weeks, right? Seven, three plus seven plus two. For the next 12 weeks, which is, which is um, 12 weeks, three months, thank you. For three months, the Haftorahs are not going to pertain directly to the parasha, Torah portion. Rather, they're going to relate to the time of year. Now, I'm not making this up. This is all well sourced, and if you look at the Haftorahs, you'll see it's about what's going on right now. Yes. In fact, yeah. Did this when, I mean, no, 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 didn't. Oh, one second. So, because you know, I mean, if it was originally. Well, if the, originally they read the Torah portion, and then there was a decree, and they had to read from the Haftorah. Right. From then, from when they first, when they originally established from the books of the prophets to read from the yeah, OG. This is original. They originally established that they typically do the Torah portion, except for this time of year, we go, we go uh, t- um, timely. And topical instead of you know. So there's no Torah portion. There is. We, there's a, you read the Torah, but the half the half Torah is themed after the time of year and not after the Torah portion. So yeah, for, you for sure read the Torah and the and the half Torah, but the half Torah is themed uh, with the time of year. So let me share my screen. Let's take a look. You guys have it here. Text number one, Donna. If you don't mind, let's begin with you. If you're up to text one, page number three. Let me share my screen. Let's jump. In. Let's. Show. Who needs glasses? <laughs> there you, go. you have your glasses. You couldn't see that your glasses are there. There you go. All right. Take a look. Uh, I'm going to make this a little bit bigger on the screen. Let's jump right in. We generally read a Haftorah that relates to the theme of the Torah portion until three weeks before Shisha Ba'av, 17 Tammuz. At that point, the Haftorah follows the time of year. Three readings recount the misfortune of the temple's destruction. Seven readings comfort the nation from the tragedy, and two readings discuss repentance before the high holiday. We read a selection from Jeremiah for Parsha Pintas and another for Parsha Matot, and for Parsha Devarim we read from Isaiah. So those are the first three. So the lineup over the next three weeks, starting from this Shabbat, is, uh, is Jeremiah, Jeremiah again, and Isaiah. And those relate, by the way, this comes from the Tor. The Tor was one of the authors of the Code of Jewish Law. And he was also the author of the Balaturim, which uh, there's a, you know, anyone who took my num- the numerology course that I taught, so we did, a, he was all into numerology. A lot of it comes from him. He lived in the 1200s. Very cool stuff. All right, so what, how does the Haftarah begin? After much pop and circumstance and after much ado, so what is this week's Torah portion? Sorry, what is this week's Haftarah? It is from Jeremiah, and it is from chapter one and a little bit of chapter two of Jeremiah. So first of all, a little background info about Jeremiah. Let's get a little background info so that we know who we're talking about here. Jeremiah lived at the time of the first temple. It's very important that we have clear first temple, second temple. What I told you before about the year 69 and the Romans uh, breaking down the walls of Jerusalem and it took three weeks till they burned the temple, that was the second temple. But here's what you need to know. The first temple was also destroyed on the same day, the ninth of Av. Crazy that the first and second temples, eight, um, 500 years apart, they were both destroyed on the same day. The Spanish 
uh, expulsion also happened on the same Hebrew date, the ninth of Av. A lot, of, many tragedies happen on that date. So what we're what we're going to focus on right now in text number two is from the prophet from the book of uh, from the book of Jeremiah. Is um, is his origin story and how he became a prophet. Jeremiah lived at the time of the first temple. By the time the second temple was destroyed, there weren't prophets. Prophecy had had essentially come to an end. So there wasn't the institution of Jewish prophets and prophecy at the end of the Second Temple era. So Jeremiah lived... The last prophets were, were um, you know, Daniel and his, and his crew, his contemporaries. Um, but Jeremiah lived... They were at the beginning of the Second Temple era, around the sec- beginning of the Second... But I'm saying by the end of the Second Temple era... There wasn't the institution of prophecy. But but the end of the first temple era, that's that's when Jeremiah uh, did his thing. Kabbalah, coffee. You know, you mentioned that the Rebbe, you know, is able to discern for individuals what their future, what's best for their future. Yeah. So how does that compare? Yeah, to so good, good question. So the question is, like, can a Rebbe also have some spiritual intuition? The answer is yes. That doesn't contradict the idea that prophecy as an institution was kind of... Well, yeah, but no, but what I mean as an institution, what I mean is as a thing that the Jewish community is led and directed by prophets, and there's like a formal structure of who's a prophet, who's not. That that was disbanded, or that doesn't exist anymore. Individuals, select individuals that have you know connections, a rebbe, a tzaddik, whatever. That always that was always true, but as an institution of prophecy, like as a formal thing that is widespread for the community, is that 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 hasn't existed for many years. Um, Jeremiah, back to Jeremiah. Jeremiah lived at the toward the end of the first temple era, as things were looking a little bleak. God told Jeremiah that his role is going to be to tell the Jewish people what's what the score is, right? What's going to go? What's going to happen? If you don't shape up, this is not this does this is not going to last much longer. The temple will be destroyed. You will be exiled. Things will be very bleak. Things will be very sad. So this was Jer- one of Jeremiah's roles as a prophet was to warn the people, essentially, about the impending destruction of the temple. In fact, he was so uh, uh, vigorous in warning the people about the temple's destruction, they ultimately murdered him. The Jews, Jew- some Jews, murdered Jeremiah for talking too much about the destruction of the temple. They actually murdered him. Too sad, or they wanted to stop him. Whatever it was, it's a very complicated topic, but he—that was his defining feature. So in this, this, this Shabbat, after we close the Torah, we finish the Torah reading of Pinchas, we open up the Haftorah, we read from the opening of Jeremiah and his his whole, you know, uh, uh, mission was to warn the people about the destruction of the temple. But the book of Jeremiah opens up with his origin story. How did he become a prophet? When did God speak to him? How did it all, how did it all go down? So let's look at the beginning of the book of Jeremiah and, and see how Jeremiah is introduced to us. This is literally Jeremiah 1, 1. Ray, are you up to reading? Um, yes, text number two. Text number two, where it says the words of Jeremiah. The words of Jeremiah, son of Tokiah, of the priests who were in on, on the 
son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. And he was in the days of Jehoiakim. Jo Josiah. Josiah, king of Judah, until the end of eleven years of Zedekiah, son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the exile of Jerusalem in the fifth month. So let me just explain. So the so the Torah, the book of the prophets, so it opens up by kind of tracing when Jeremiah did his thing, when he was a prophet. So he started. Uh, in the 13th year of, of the reign of King Josiah, and he went until the exile of Jerusalem in the fifth month, uh, sorry, until the end of 11 years of Zedekiah, son of Josiah, until the exile of Jerusalem in the fifth month. The fifth month would be the month of Av. And I told you that the first temple was also destroyed in the month of Av. Anyway, the point is that he was the prophet that kind of did his thing in that time, the, 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 the time span that, that I was at the end of the first temple era. All right, here we go. Uh, verse number four, please continue. And the word of God came to me, saying, When I had not yet formed you in the womb, I knew you. And when you had not yet emerged from the womb, I had appointed you a prophet in the nations I made you. And I said, Alas, O Lord God, behold, I know not to speak for, and I am but a youth. Continue. And Next page. God said to me, Say not, I am but a youth. For wherever I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Fear them not, for I am with you to save you, says God. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to have you uh, here and, and reading text. It's awesome. So, uh, the t so, so the, 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 the Navi, the prophet, says something interesting. And again, from verse, verse, verses 1 through 3 are kind of background info, and verse 4 is in the prophet's own words. Right, the word of God came to me. Who's me? That's uh, that's Jeremiah. That's Jeremiah. That's Jeremiah himself speaking. He's writing this. He's recounting this. That God came to me. And but, and, but let's look at the let's look at verse five. Let's let's focus on verse five for a second. When I had not yet, God said to me to Jeremiah, when I had not yet formed you in the womb, I knew you. There was beef, I knew you before you were born. You know, like when you meet someone, like oh, I knew you before. I knew your parents before you were born. Like the whole. Uh, Right, you would get that when you went over to your Bubby's house and Bubby's friends were there. Yeah, okay. So I knew you. God says before you know in the uh, when, before you were in the womb, even when I had not yet formed you in the womb, I knew. You. And when you had not yet emerged from the womb, I had appointed you, a prophet to the nations. I made you. And then basically, yeah. A prophet to the nations. Why to the nations? If he was a Jewish prophet, what I think he means. Is and the Hebrew says Navi Goyim. Yeah, why? Why to the nations? And I think it's because although he was a Jewish prophet and was speaking to the Jewish people, but ultimately it affected also what the other nations were doing. If the Jews were uh, behaving the way they needed to, then the nations would have behaved a little bit differently, and you know things would have changed. So it's a prophet to the nations. Um, and and then and Jeremiah says, I said, I I know not to speak for I am but youth. He was very young. I don't know how old he was. He was very young. God says, Nah. Don't give excuses. Don't say I'm young. Right? Stop that. Wherever I send you, you shall go. Wherever I command you, you shall speak. For them not, I am with you to save you, says God. In other words, be confident, be strong. So I want to ask three questions on this. This is how the book of Jeremiah opens up. This is how our Haftorah opens up. By the way, the Haftorah continues with God saying, Jeremiah, what's in your hand? And he looks. He has an almond rod. And God says, ah, almonds. Oh, almonds. 
uh, blossom quickly, and that means that, w- that what I'm about to tell you is going to happen quickly, and what am I about to tell you about the impending destruction? Oh, he says, what else do you see? A pot bubbling. Oh, pot bubbling means that, God says to Jeremiah, that destruction, bad news is coming from the north, because the bubbles were in the north of the pot. I guess. So, bad news is coming from the north, and it's going to happen soon, unless there's repentance, but there's still a chance, and that was the first, the opening prophecy that we read this week. Fine. But I have a few questions. We read, I I, I hope to not disappoint with the questions. Here we go. Question number one. The Haftorah, we know, is either in in fitting with the, the Torah portion, or with the time of year. So it would be appropriate to talk about, to, to cite the section from Jeremiah where God says, tell the people, they better behave, they better get their act together, or else destruction is coming from the north, and it's going to come quickly. They're going to be wiped out, but there's still a chance. If they mend their ways, I still love them. I, get to the chase. Why do we have to read in this week's Haftorah that God spoke to him in this year, that year of the rain, and there was uh, um, God said, I knew you all the way back then. Why do we need the whole origin story of Jeremiah. Again, it's like if you're learning the book of Jeremiah, that's one thing. But if we're excerpting for the Haftorah, if we're excerpting to fit this time of the three weeks when we're thinking about tshuva, repentance, and, and, getting our, and cleaning up our act spiritually, right? So if that's the case, why not just cite the part where he says, clean up your act? Why are we going all the way back to the beginning of the book where we're getting other, other details? That's question number one. Question number two. If you look back at the verse, and again, I highlighted verse 5 before, and that's what I really want to highlight again. If you look back at verse number 5, God is telling him, uh, basically, even, even while you were in the womb, I knew you, and I appointed you. Right When you had not yet emerged from the, womb, from the womb, I had appointed you. A prophet to the nations, I made you. In other words, you were a prophet, he's basically saying, God's saying to him, you were a prophet, you were for, this job was for you, even before you were born. Okay? What would, what would have been lost in the conversation had God said, from the moment you were born, you were earmarked for greatness? Why does he go back to the womb? You understand my question? Mm-hmm. Why does God tell him, from the womb, I knew you. From the womb, you were, I chose you as a prophet. Why, why before, okay, good, hold, hold that thought. Why, why go all the way back before birth? Why not say, if God wants to point out that you know, his destiny is to be a prophet and to encourage the Jewish people to repent, to do tshuva, he should have said, from the moment you were born, he could have said from when you were a kid or from when you were born, why does he go before birth? It's very dramatic. Um, and what does it mean when God says, when I had not yet formed you in the womb, I knew you. What does it mean I knew you? And then what does it mean that I had appointed you? Maybe appointed as a prophet, but what do these phrases, I knew you and appointed you mean? And that's question number three. And question number four is, and what does it mean for us today in 2022, this time of year? So to recap the questions, question number one, why do we need the background? Just give us, just give us the meat. To quote the old Wendy's commercial, where's the beef, right? Give me, give me the meat, right? Can we talk about Wendy's commercials? We just did. Yeah, so, so what's, what's, get, get, get to the, let's cut to the chase. Question number one. Number two, why does God say, you were earmarked for greatness before you were born. Why not just say, from the moment you were born, you were earmarked for greatness. Why go into the womb? It's question two. Question number three, what does it mean that when God says, I knew you, I, I, I appointed you? What does that mean? Uh, specifically those terms. And the fourth question is, what does it mean for us? 
How is this all relevant to us? Because if we have a theoretical conversation about Jeremiah and God and the verses and explain it, but it doesn't relate to us, then we've wasted our time together. Okay, we haven't wasted our time. Okay, maybe we learned some Torah. But if we're being selfish, we wasted our time. Because what's in it for me? What's in it for me? Right? Enough about Jeremiah. Let's talk. Like the guy that goes on a date. You know this one, right? Guy goes on a date, and for an hour, Sala, first hour of the date, he's talking about himself. Self, I this, I that, I the other. I, 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 I. Ay, 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 ay. Anyway, an hour in, he catches his breath. He turns to her and he says to her, So, whew, I have done a lot of talking about myself. All right, enough. Now, what do you think about me? Right? I, so, like, fine. So, what is. There you go. So, what, is it, what does it mean? What does it mean for us? Because at the end of the day, we're, we're trying to learn lessons from this. So, to understand this, we're going to get into. Uh, a topic that has many, many ramifications, including ramifications on a debate that is very real today in 2022. A debate that we're not going to get into tonight. I can know <laughs> A debate that we're not going to touch because we've actually discussed it in other classes. And tonight is not a, not a class on this topic. Tonight is a class not on the laws related to a fetus, but rather to an essential question that relates to that. The question being, when does life begin? When does life begin? When does life begin? Does life begin at conception? Does life begin at birth? As the famous joke goes, does life begin when they graduate from medical school, right? <laughs> Ask a Jewish mother, when does life begin? It graduates from medical school. No, but really, the question is, when does, when does life begin? It's a valid question. It's a valid question. You should know that there seems to be a debate. Now, again, well, hold on. Before, before I go any further, understand this. This question is not just a theoretical question. There are many practical ramifications of this question, right? Again, as you can imagine, I'll let you use your own imagination. The question is, is the unborn, right, an unborn fetus... Does it have the status of alive or not alive? That might be a relevant question, right? Perhaps. It's a relevant question, I, I would say. It's a, it's a real question. And again, tonight we're not going to get into the halachas, the, 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 the laws that, that, that come out of this. But it's more to the core question, when does life begin? So when does life begin? Um, as we'll see from sources, a few sources in the Talmud, um, there are actually a number of opinions amongst the Jewish scholars as to when life begins. We're going to start with a quote from the Talmud. Text number three, Tractate Nida. Tessa, please read this one. Give me one second. Let me pull it up on the screen. This is a, a, a fairly famous text, one that we've done many times in past classes. Um, uh, but please read this because it is extremely important. Rabbi Simrai taught a fetus in its mother's womb is comparable to a folded notebook. It rests with its hands on the two sides of its head, its arms on its two knees, its heels on its two buttocks, and its head rests between its knees. Its mouth is closed and its umbilicus is open. It eats from what it, its mother eats and it drinks from what its mother drinks. There are no days more blissful for a person than those days when they are a fetus in their mother's womb, as the verse states, If only I were in the months of old, as in the days when God watched over me. 
Job 29.2. Which are the days that have months but do not have years? You must say that these are the months of gestation. A fetus is then taught the entire Torah. All right, this, thank you. This is an excerpt. There's a, there's a lot that's, that's cut out of this. This is an excerpt where the Talmud describes the condition in utero. In utero. What is going on with the fetus in utero? So first of, all, first of all, it talks about the position of the fetus, physical position, and then it talks about how beautiful it is, how blissful it is um, in, 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 uh, for the fetus to be in, in its mother's womb. And uh, it's then taught the entire Torah. What's cut out of this piece of Talmud, and uh, you, you, many of us have, dis- have, have uh, studied this together multiple times, says that there's a light or candle lit above its head, and it sees from one, one end of the world until the other, that's what it says. That doesn't mean literally. Obviously, the fetus is not literally seeing, but it's a it's a spiritual understanding. It has, spirit, it has spiritual clarity. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, and how do we know which one? I, I'm, assu- I'm assuming that it it's connected with yeah with. with the, oh yeah, yeah. And then the angel taps it on the slip, and then it forgets. Now we're gonna get into that a little bit later. So it's it's a little bit crafted in this uh, in, in this in this class today, but yeah, it also says when the when the fetus emerges, it's tapped in its lip, it forgets everything. Okay, um, yeah. Now, does this count also for non-Jewish children? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don asked that question about about being taught the entire Torah. My understanding is that um, certainly for talking about Torah. You know, uh, uh, so the question is, what do we mean by Torah? So if we're talking about Torah as moral wisdom, moral guidance, spiritual understanding, then perhaps we could write seven and laws, then perhaps it, w- it, it applies across the board. If it's talking about Torah, Torah, like the Jewish Torah, then it would make sense that it would be for, for those who are Jewish, for Jewish souls. Right, and so, right. So it would make sense that there is this, there's a more, there's a universal um, teaching and then a, and then a particular teaching. Um, that's my understanding. Now, here is, so based on this, based on this, and I'm keeping it up here for a second, based on this, we might say, uh, sorry, actually, if I would ask you a question, based on this piece of Talmud, um, is, does the fetus have a soul? What would you say? Is there a soul uh, involved with the fetus? It's nine months. I mean, there's, it varies. Very, okay, you're saying it varies? All right, but in general, if it's being taught Torah, you would think that there's some neshama there. Now, we have to be very, I, I want to be precise with the question and with the answer, with the language and in general. Let's, let's be precise than vague. When we say, when we say soul, soul, the word soul can mean many different things, especially when you study Kabbalah and Chassidus, you know that there are multiple souls, multiple souls. And the soul itself has five dimensions. The word soul is so general, it almost means nothing unless we specify it. There's a godly soul. There's an animal soul. There's an intellectual soul. We have all, all these different types of souls. So the question is, when, we ta- when we're talking about now the question of when does life begin, in other words, when, does, when is there a soul involved, which is the definition of life, so we have to clarify, what do we mean? Do we mean a godly soul? Do we mean a, 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 a vivifying soul? So here's the thing. Everything in existence has a soul. Even a stone, why am I saying even? Because a stone that shows no signs of life, the stone doesn't grow, it doesn't move, it doesn't show any outward signs of life, doesn't, there's no movement, you think a stone is dead, stone has a soul. So certainly if something, anything that exists has a soul. If it exists, it has a soul, right? Which means that a fetus in a womb has a soul. It exists, it has a soul. The question is not just, does it have a soul? 
like a stone? Does it have a soul? Does it have a human soul, a godly soul? Does it have a, a soul soul? It seems like, if it's being taught Torah, it seems like, well, that makes it sound like there's a spiritual, uh, godly soul, not just a, uh, an, an existential soul, but a godly soul that's being taught Torah. That's what, it, that's what it would seem like. Let's take a look at text 4. So that's text 3. Let's take a look at text 4. As, uh, as we continue kind of uh, uh, weaving our way through Talmudic narratives. Sandrine, please read this one. Oh, let me give a quick introduction. Quick introduction. There's a Mishnah that says, I'm putting it up here, text 5. You, can, you know what, Sandrine, please read text number 5. And then, and then we'll get back to text 4. We're going to do this in a bit of a different order. Every Jew has a portion in the world to come at its state. Your people, all of them righteous, shall possess the land forever. They are the shoot that I planted, my handiwork to be glorified. So the, the mission says, thank you, the mission says, Call Yisrael, yesh lahem chelek haba. All Israel has a portion in the world to come. Okay? Here's my question. Here's, it's in Pirkei Avot. That's how we start Pirkei Avot. That's the opening... The opening line of Pirkei Avot, every Shabbat, we, we learn this, it's these two lines. Now, here's my question. It says, every Jew has a share in the world to come. But it's not exclusive, it's not only Jews, but it, it just says, every Jew has a share in the world to come. It's a Jewish text speaking to a Jewish community. Now, here's the question. At what point is the Jew considered to have earned the world to come? Does that make sense? No, my question doesn't make sense. It makes sense, but I didn't articulate it well. It says, Call Yisrael, all of Israel have a share in the world to come. At what stage is that line triggered? Boom! Now you've, now you've got it. So, life. Right? As, as soon as a, a Jew is, well, is alive, then they get a share in the world to come. What is, when is, when is it alive? When is a person alive? That's the question. So, when does life begin? When does life begin? So now the Talmud discusses this in practice Sanhedrin, the Talmud now breaks this down. So when does this kick in? Does the question make sense? The question makes sense? Okay. Um, so now let's go back to, to text number four. Elio, please read this one. It was taught, when does an infant enter the world to come? Now understand the question, when does an infant enter the world to come? What, what do you mean? Well, by the way, world to come doesn't mean heaven. It means Messianic era Mashiach. And... and, and um, means the resurrection of the dead. So when does an infant enter the world to come? Uh, when Mashiach comes. Done. And that's not the question. The question is not when. When, when Everyone's going to do that together. The, not the question is when does it end. When does it gain the status of a life to then earn the ticket to the world to come? Does that make sense? When does life begin? That's the question. When does life begin? If you ever wonder, does the Talmud discuss when life begins? Literally right here, Tractate Sanhedrin 110b. Continue. Oh, and, and five different opinions. Jump it. Yeah, five different opinions. Rabbi Chia and Rabbi Shimon Bar Rebbe dis disagree. One said from when they are born, and the other said from when they speak. Ravina said from the moment of conception. Rab Nachman Bar Yitzhak said from circumcision. Atana taught in the name of Rabbi Meir from the moment the infant says Amen for the first time. We have di five different opinions. We're going to start from earliest to latest. So one opinion says, Ravina says... From the moment of conception, there's life, and that life earns a share in the world to come. Done. Conception. 
Next opinion, I'm not going in order here, I'm going in chronological order. The next opinion says, from birth, the moment the fetus emerges from its mother's womb, it earns its ticket, punches its ticket to the world to come. Next opinion says, no, not from conception, not from birth, from time of circumcision. Eight days later, eight days later, punches a ticket for a boy, for a girl will be at birth. Okay, that's the third opinion. Fourth opinion says, no, from the moment a child speaks for the first time, the first words of my Bukhar, my firstborn son, Nasan Lemon Seltzer. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. It was, no, it was like his third. After, after Mama and Dada, it was Lemon Seltzer. Anyway, so, so um, the first words. And then the last opinion, or the, the latest opinion says, from when the infant says, Amen, answering a blessing for the first time, i.e. the first mitzvah. It's not really a mitzvah, the child can't do a mitzvah, but at least answering Amen, to a mitzvah or a blessing, the first Jewish action, that's when it punches a ticket to the world to come. So again, we have a teaching in the Mishnah. That's why I reversed the order, Mishnah and then Talmud. The Mishnah says that all Israel have a share, punch their ticket to the world to come. When does the ticket get punched? When do you qualify? Some say at conception, some say at birth. At the bris, by the way, for girls, it's at birth. There's no bris. It's right. So conception, birth, bris, circumcision, speaking for the first time, first words, or the first time the child answers amen, says amen to a blessing. The question here is, how do we reconcile all these opinions? Now you could say, well, you have different opinions, and who needs to reconcile them? Different opinions. That's it. And yet, what Kabbalah and Hasidic philosophy come along and do is uh, they reconcile these texts, the mystical texts of Judaism, reconcile these Talmudic opinions said, you know, and say, you know what? They all are correct. How can they all be correct? Because they speak about different stages in the development of life itself. In other words... When we talk about the question, when we ask the question, we discuss, the, explore the question, when does life begin? It's a bit of a complicated question. Because what is life? When does life begin? I first need to know what life is. What's life? I'm going to give you a definition of life. Okay, here's my definition. Life is when the soul and the body come together. So when does that happen? It's complicated. It's complicated. It's a process. It's a process. When does, when does body and soul come together? Well, by conception. There's some uh, element of being paired up. The soul is paired up with the body at that point. There's a soul and a body that are earmarked for each other. Okay? As gestation, as Donna mentioned, as gestation develops, that relationship gets closer and closer. At birth, there's an even closer union. Now it's, there's a measure of independence. Right, The child is now uh, thrust into the world. And now it has to breathe on its own, so now it has its own, like its, its soul is really powering its body. It can't rely on its mother you know, to eat and breathe and, and, and all that stuff. To eat and drink, I mean. Um, then you have other stages of development. And, and as we'll see as we go throughout in the next, the next few minutes, there are many, many stages in which, uh, or, or, or at which the body and soul get closer and closer together. 
I'll give you a, a parallel example. If somebody went ask you, so tell me, so when does when does a person become mature? How would you answer that? <laughs> I'll let you know when it happens. Yeah. No, no. When does a person become mature and responsible? Well, I don't know. When I turned five, I was responsible for tying my own shoes. When I was 10, I was responsible for money. When I was 20, I was responsible for getting a job. I mean, you understand that the word responsible and mature evolves and can mean many different things. As we get older, the stakes are higher and the it, it, everything is, you know, it's, it's, it takes on a, a more weighty note. That's not about weighty, but it, it just takes on a different, different energy and a greater energy. The same thing is true with life itself. If life is the integration of body and soul, when does that happen? It's ongoing. It's still going on. We're still trying to get in touch with our soul. Are you with me on this? We're still learning to hear the voice of our soul and to understand its needs and wants. And not only listen to the body, but listen to the soul. We're working on it. It's a, it's a work in progress. So it begins at conception. 100% it begins at conception. It continues through gestation. It continues at birth. It continues and deepens and develops at a bris. It continues at uh, different stages of education, including first words and the first amen and then parabat mitzvah. So there's different stages, and each stage is a greater integration. So when does life begin? Depends on how you define begin. When does it begin generally? Conception. When does it begin on the next level at birth, the next level at the birth, the next level, etc. You with me on this? Does it make sense? In other words, it unfolds in stages. Again, this is relevant to many questions, right? It's relevant to many questions. Um, halakha questions. I'll just say this, although it's not, it's not the topic for tonight. The Talmud unequivocally says that if a mother's life is in danger by, a, by the fetus, then you abort the fetus to save the life of the mother. And Rashi says, because it is not a full life. It's not a full life. What does it mean, full life? Is it, a, is it life or not life? Full life. But based on this, we can understand. It's life, but it's not fully integrated yet. It doesn't have the next stage. So it, it has, but it doesn't have. So again, in the Talmud, we have five opinions. It's a spark, and it's associated. It's 100% associated. It's earmarked. It's connected. And on some level, we do call that life. On another level, we don't call that life. It's Again, it's all relative. Relative to what was before conception, this is life. Relative to what comes later, it's not full because it doesn't have that independence. Let's take a look at how the rabbit describes this. I'm going to read text number six. We'll go through a few texts, and then we're going to bring it back to our discussion about Jeremiah in the three weeks and, and, our, and our life today in 2022. Here's what the Rebbe says. When the fetus is in its mother's womb, it has a godly soul. But that soul is not integrated with its body, or I would say it's not fully integrated. Uh, this is page 8, text 6. Even the purely physical life force is not fully revealed and active. In other words, not only is the godly soul not integrated fully, but even the biological soul is not fully active. Hence, it is sustained by the food of the mother. True entrance of the soul um, into the body is when the body and soul become unified and integrated, such as one can see the soul effect in the body. In other words, when you look at the fetus, do you see that this fetus is self-powered or is powered by something else? The answer is B, powered by something else. In this case, someone else. 
right? The child is plugged into its mother. The fetus, not child. The fetus is plugged in, right? It's plugged in. That's how it's alive, plugged in. You cut the cord, that's it, right? It's not going to survive. It's plugged in. So does it have its own life? Uh, sort of, but not fully, right? That's what the Rebbe is saying here, right? True entrance is of uh, the soul into the body is when this body and soul become unified and integrated, such as one can see the soul effect in the body, i.e. at birth. Even once a child is born, however, the Rebbe says, still not full. The effect of the godly soul is not immediately apparent. Rather, it is their animating soul, which is synonymous with their physical life force that drives their existence. What does a baby do? Cries, middle of the night, 2 a.m., 3 a.m. The mother's trying to sleep. Father's trying to sleep. What happens? The baby's crying. Why is the baby crying? The baby's hungry. Hold on. Once you can't wait a few hours. Yeah, you ask the baby. You can't wait a few hours. What is this? Your mother is very tired. She's been she's been running. You know, she's been taking care of you all day. You can't give her another two hours. You would tell an adult. One second. One second. If your neighbor came knocking on your door 3 a.m., like pounding on your door. Open up, open up, open up. You're like, oh my God, it's an emergency. All right, you come running downstairs. Run downstairs, open up the front door. Can I have a glass of milk? Like, are you out of your mind? A glass of milk? You're going to wait till 6 a.m. You're going to wait till the morning. What are you doing? Glass of milk. You need a glass of milk at 2 a.m.? And yet, a baby, baby, that's it. Done. In other words, it, and this is not a criticism of, of babies. This is just a fact, a fact of life. We, by the way, all of us, we were all babies. I don't know anyone who started off as an adult, even though if we can't imagine it, we were all in that role waking up other people for our own needs. It's self-centered. That's not a bad thing. It's a, it's a reality. We all started our life very self-centered. When we needed something, we cried and we got attention. Right? We didn't take the godly soul approach, which is to think of others before ourselves. We didn't. By the way, it's not, again, it's not a criticism. It's a fact of life. The Rebbe says that shows that even though the godly soul is integrated with the body, it's not so fully integrated. It's more body than soul because we care more about us than about the other. So it's more body than soul. Not a bad thing. It's a thing thing. It's just a, it's just a thing. It's a reality of life. I love babies. I'm just saying. It's a, right? That's the reality of life. Hold on one second. Let's, let, let me finish this, uh, this reading. Um, Right? So again, the effect of the godly soul at birth is not immediately apparent. Rather, it's their animating soul, which is synonymous with the physical life force that drives their existence. Only once a baby boy is circumcised does the soul become truly connected to one with the body, although I don't know if we see that, uh, other than the fact that there's now a sign in the body of a mitzvah. You know, I, I think the personality still remains. Brit Mila, God's commandment to circumcise, physically modifies the body and as such furthers the connection of body and soul to another level. And a girl is considered to have been circumcised from birth. Now, so we have different stages. The original earmark of body and soul is at conception. Then at birth, they become more integrated. Then at the bris, at the first mitzvah, for a boy at least, they become even more integrated. Then you have, we had other stages of speaking and saying amen. And then you have this really beautiful text, text number seven. Now this pertains to the mitzvah of washing the hands in the morning. Now as you, as you may be familiar, familiar with in Jewish tradition, in the morning, after we wake up, the first thing we do when we wake up is we say the moda'ani, moda'ani lefanecha. We basically say, thank you, God, I'm alive. Thank you, God, I made it. I'm here for another day. That's worthy of Thanksgiving. The next thing we do immediately after that is we wash our hands. How do we wash our hands? We alternate. We take a cup of water, pour once in the right, once in the left, 
once on the right and once on the left, once on the right and once on the left, once on the right and once on the left, so early in the morning. This is the way we wash our hands, wash our hands, wash our hands. In case you wanted to know the jingle, now you know. Good luck getting that out of your head. So you wash, you wash one, two, one, two, one, two, and you don't say a blessing at that point. Why do we wash our hands? The answer is to wash off the impurity of death. What's this death impurity? Very simple, when we go to sleep, the soul separates from the body and renders the body impure. Right? Death renders one impure. There's a mini death every time we sleep. It's one sixtieth of death. It's a taste of death. Taste of death is sleep. So when we wake up in the morning, we have to wash off our hands because the residue of death remains on the hands. And where does it reside? Specifically on the nails of the hand because the nails are the most dead part of the hand. How do we know they're dead? Cut them and you don't feel it. Right? That means it's, it's more deadened than the rest. Cut the finger, you're going to feel it. Don't cut your finger. Right? But if you get a paper cut, you will feel it. Right? If you cut your fingernail, you're not going to feel it. Um, getting back, and you're probably wondering, why are we talking about this? Simple, simple thing. In order to be considered dead, you got to be considered alive. Does that make sense? If you're not alive, then you can't die. Correct? Yes. You with me? If you're not alive, then you can't die. So the question is, who becomes impure in the morning? Do kids become impure? Are kids alive? And you say, of course kids are alive. I'm asking my godly soul. Is the godly soul integrated? You with me on the question? A five-year-old child, when they wake up in the morning, do they need to do the hand washing? Because are their hands impure? When they were sleeping, it's the same thing. Well, the the question is, no, if this, the impurity is rendered because the soul left the body, the question, was it ever integrated there to begin with? Right, until... If it's not integrated, so then it left. It was never integrated. There's no absence felt. The absence is only felt if it was integrated. You with me on this? Let's take a look at the code of Jewish law. This is unbelievable. It would blow your mind. It's like, no, that mind-blown emoji. Get ready. Get ready to toggle that up. Get ready to toggle it up. Text number seven. From the Antwerp of Our sages cautioned in the Talmud about the spirit of impurity resting on a person's hands upon awakening, saying that it is not removed entirely until they're washed three times alternately. They also warned that before washing, this is a practical law, by the way, that everyone should know, one should not touch their eyes, ears, nose, or mouth. Sounds like uh, COVID protocol as well. When one sleeps and the holy soul departs, the spirit of impurity takes hold of the body. When the soul returns to the body, the spirit of impurity departs from the entire body and remains only in the hands. For this reason, it has become customary to be, to be lenient. Look at this. With regard to washing the hands of younger children who have not reached an, edu- an educable age, with regard to the Torah and its mitzvot. This is because the soul enters the body in a real way when a boy reaches 13 years in one day and with a girl when she reaches 12. This is the next level. Look at this. We had conception. We had birth. We had bris. We had first words. We had first amen. Now we just layered another another little time stamp. And that is 13 for a boy, uh, 12 for a girl, bar and bat mitzvah. Hold hold on one second. This is why at that time they are obligated by scriptural law to observe mitzvot and are considered to be a punishable age. Others are responsible. The, the entry of this holy soul begins at the age in which the child begins training for Torah observance as is obligated by the sages. An earlier phase of this entry begins with the midst of circumcision. Therefore, a person who is careful to wash the hands of an infant from the day of circumcision onward may, be right, may, be rightfully, may rightfully be called holy. The point is like this. 
The point is that a child below the age of 12 or 13, girl and boy, right, they, their soul is not fully integrated, therefore sleep doesn't disintegrate, as it were, disintegrate the soul from the body and therefore doesn't render the child impure to the point that they would have to fully and legally wash their hands. Now they still should do it. We still train our children young to do it from, from the time of uh, three years old or even earlier to wash their hands. And he said even some do it from the time of a bris. They wash their, their baby's hands. That's, that's a very, very rare custom. Um, but the point is that legally it only kicks in at 1213 because again, and, and if I lost you in the logic, I apologize, but it's also okay. Uh, the bottom line is, in order to be considered impure, the impurity is rendered when the soul separates from the body uh, at sleep, but it's only considered separating if it was prior integrated. So before 12 and 13, it's not fully integrated. Therefore, the separation is not separation. The impurity is not an impurity, and the hands don't need to be washed, at least legally, officially. What's the point? The point is that life and soul, soul and body integration happens stages. La'at, la'at, little by little, stage by stage. So what happens? What happens at conception? What happens at conception is there's a soul and a body that are earmarked for each other. This body and this soul, they will, they will join together. They are joining together. Now, it's not fully integrated yet, but they're still in association. And that soul is taught the entirety of Torah. And as we mentioned earlier, uh, or as was mentioned earlier, there's a postscript to that in the Talmud. This is text number 8. Once the child enters the world, an angel hits the child on its mouth and causes him or her to forget all of the Torah they learned, which begs the question, what was the point? What was the point? What was the point on two levels? What was the point of earmarking body and soul for nine months? Just put the soul in at birth, let's say. Why does it have to be around by conception? And why does it have to learn the whole Torah if it's going to forget it anyway? Understand the question? And here's the simple answer. The simple answer is, it's a powerful answer. Simple but powerful. The simple answer is that by infusing the body with a soul for nine months, by teaching it the soul the entire Torah, we are pre-saturating the soul with strength and energy that it will then use in its life on earth, even if it doesn't remember it. There's a residue of the learning. There's a residual effect that will never be able to be erased. And that residual effect will carry the individual through their life. It's often been likened, Torah is often likened to a song. What's the, what's the, what's the, what's the meaning of that, of that comparison, of that metaphor? Just like a song. Sometimes you hear a song and it strikes you as familiar. You heard the tune somewhere, you can't place where you heard it, but it sounds, sounds familiar. When we study Torah today, it sounds familiar. It resonates. You know why? Because you already studied it. Because you already studied it. Because you have it inside. So it's, it's not a new thing as much as it is a resonant thing. There's a resonance. It feels right. It feels home. It feels at home. Because this is what you you and I, this is what we were formed on. This was the original food that we ate with all due respect to our mothers and, 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 and the umbilical cord. This is what our souls ate for nine months, Torah. So even though once it crosses over to the other side, i.e. birth, 
the angel slaps it on the lip, hopefully gently, and causes the child, the, the, the child now to forget the entire Torah, and the soul no longer remembers, it remembers. It doesn't remember in an overt way, in, in, in an apparent way, but it remembers as a deep memory that can't really be erased. Can't really be erased. And this is the message that God was telling Jeremiah. God tells Jeremiah, I want you to be the one to try to right the ship. The ship is sinking. The Jewish ship is going down. And that's, it's looking bleak. And I want you to, 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 to steer the ship back to safety, to right the ship that's absolutely sinking. And Jeremiah is saying, me? What do you want from me? And God says, from the womb I knew you. From the womb I appointed you. You know what that means? It means that you have the strength because your soul from the beginning has been given this mission. Your soul was given this mission. It's not something that you have to somehow discover now for the first time or somehow get these energies. You're just like we study Torah in utero in order so that later on we have what to draw from because it's, it's part of our DNA. You can't, you, it, doesn't, it never gets pulled out of us all the way. The same thing is true with the gifts and the mission that we have. The gifts and the mission that we have has been given to us from the moment the soul was first earmarked for the body. It was a body, it was a soul, and it was a mission. And God tells Jeremiah, your mission predates you. It's older than your, than your birth certificate. Your mission is older than your birth certificate. Your mission is as old as your soul. That's your mission. And you have nothing to worry about. You have nothing to worry about in the sense that, can I do it? Do I have the ability to do it? Do you have the ability to do it? Of course you have the ability to do it. It's literally who you are. It's part of your spiritual DNA. It's part of your soul's very identity. This is your mission. You can do it. What's amazing is the following. What's, what, what, the implication is like this. When we're in utero... Right When we're in the womb, when things are comfortable, so then everything's easy. Everything's easy. We don't need to eat. We don't need to drink. Things are comfortable. In life, it means when we're in a, a place of comfort. But then often in life, we come to a place of discomfort because the womb is no longer an option. The womb, for whatever reason, is no longer an option. And now we have to go out of the womb. The question will go out of the womb. It's scary. It's like, oh, this is unfamiliar. Like, I knew that. I don't know this. This is new. It's the uncharted territory. Do I have the ability to do this? And God says, yes. Because in there, I gave you the strength to take it out there and to do this. Are you with me on this? Am I speaking too vaguely? No, it makes sense. I'm trying to speak a little vaguely so everyone can apply it to their own lives. But again, the, 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 the inference of, of pre-birth, of, of the in utero and then, and then birth, is the idea of a safe space, versus a space of a little bit more vulnerability. So it was safe, it was comfortable, it was what was known, it was what was familiar. And now there's something new. And something new, it's scary. New is scary. It's like, can I do it? Do I have the ability to do it? Successful, not successful. A lot of questions come up, right? And so God, so the message is, don't be afraid of birth. Don't be afraid of what lies on the other side. Don't be afraid of what's outside the womb because I gave you all the strength and all the energy. I gave you the Torah. I gave you the teachings and this is your mission. 
and you're good. I gave you everything that you needed in there for what's needed out there. In other words, you were given there what you need to take out there into your mission. God told Jeremiah, you're now the prophet. Who am I? I was a private citizen. I gave you everything that you needed, that you need to do your mission. God tells us historically and collectively as a people, we had a temple. Things were good. We were contained. We were safe. We had our safe spaces. We had a temple. We knew what Judaism looked like. The temple was destroyed. Everything is different. And we might feel rootless. Rootless. What do we have? Who are we? What's our identity? Jerusalem, the temple, sacrifices. What's Judaism? Who's Judaism? Where's Judaism? And the same message exists on a collective level. God says, I've given you the core strength to take past the, to take outside of the comfortable, outside of those comfortable spaces. I've given you, I've girded you, I've, I've, I've blessed you with all the strength and all the energy that you need to take it out there into the world, out there into this new stage of reality. Whether that's for us pre and post birth, whether that's for Jeremiah pre post uh, being appointed as a prophet, or whether that's us historically pre temple's destruction, post temple's destruction, the message is the same. And the message is the message is that you have the ability. You have the strength to go out there into the unfamiliar, into the fray. You have the ability to go out there into the new landscape, into that new space, and to be successful. To be successful and to carry the mission through. God tells that to each and every one of us. The soul says, I don't want to leave the womb. I'm studying Torah. I have no material worries. I don't need to eat or drink. I don't need to go to work. I don't need to do anything. Like Like mana from heaven. Like mana from heaven. I'm plugged in. I don't need anything. It's perfect. God says, no, get out there. How am I going to do it? I gave you the Torah. God says to Jeremiah, Jeremiah, God says, Jeremiah, you're now the prophet. I'm going to tell the people what to do. From the womb, I already gave you the strength. You have the strength. Now just apply it. God tells us as a people. That's why we read this half in the three weeks. God's telling us, how do we face a world without a temple? How do we face a world in which the exile is so bitter? How do we face a world in which there's so much human suffering? And the answer is, we have the strength. God has given us, every one of us individually and, and all of us collectively, God has given us the strength that we need, that we need to be able to navigate, not only navigate and, and survive, but also to thrive and to transform the world in its present state. God has given us the strength on the inside to excel on the outside. And if we apply it to our own lives, when we're embarking on change and we're wondering, (laughs) and we're wondering what lies on the other side, we have to know that we have the strength, we have the ability, we have everything that we need to be successful. One more point, and then we'll close it out. Jeremiah was told that his mission is to be there for others. His mission is to inspire others on a good path. And the Rebbe says the same thing is for every one of us. Our mission in life is not just to go out there into into those vulnerable spaces and, and thrive. 
but it's in those vulnerable spaces to not only put on our own oxygen mask, but to help someone else with their oxygen mask. Not only that we should survive and thrive, but that we should make sure that the other one next to us, our fellow passengers in this journey called life, are also okay, are also taken care of. Yeah, we'll conclude with two texts. Don't worry, I promise we will conclude at some point. In case anyone is wondering, there will be an end to this class and it's coming soon. Text number... Speedily in our days. Speedily in our days. Amen. Uh, text number 11. The outer Rebbe says the following. The reason to teach the fetus all of, the, all of Torah is to illuminate it with a divine light that inspires love and fear of God. Through Though transcendent, the Torah he or she has learned will serve to inspire the soul. Still, they must be made to forget the Torah so as to grant the person freedom to choose good over bad. But the soul is impacted deeply by the study and through it gains the power to elevate the body in which it is integrated. This is inspired by the residue or the scar, I don't like that word, scar, left by the Torah learning in the womb. The, Rebbe, uh, the outer Rebbe doesn't use the word scar. It's from the residue left by Torah learning in the womb. And finally, the Rebbe's text this is the meaning of when God said to Jeremiah, when you had not yet emerged from the womb, I had appointed you. Not only were you imbued with the Holy Soul, but you were also sanctified. You were also sanctified. Hikdash Ticha has not only appointed you, but I made you holy. Already in the womb, you were prepared and empowered for your entrance to the world by studying the entire Torah. Yep. And one last text. It is demanded from every Jew that together with whatever he or she is doing internally with her own soul, he or she must also engage another, just like Jeremiah, engage another fellow passenger in life all the way to the lowest other possible. They must be concerned, we must be concerned that even that other person becomes a vehicle for the wellsprings of Torah and mitzvot. This is the connection between the ideas discussed and the three weeks. The entire reason why we were dispatched into exile was to purify and uplift the very fabric of exile. We must do this to the extent that we turn the darkness itself into light. We are Jeremiah. We are, Jeremiah might have been a bullfrog, as uh, Dina Malka wrote, but we are Jeremiah. Hashtag, we are Jeremiah. And that means that God is calling on each and every one of us to stand up to the darkness and to be a point of light in an otherwise bleak and oftentimes bleak world and dark world against the backdrop of darkness to be the shining light that the world needs. And not only that we should shine, but that we should help the other one shine as well. Not just shine in a selfish way, but shine selflessly, sharing our light with others or inspiring others to share their light, being a good example of what it means to be a shining light and thus inspiring others to share their light. And soon, soon, all of those billions of points on, on the map of, of, of this planet will light up with their own light and soon the world will be engulfed in light and that will bring Mashiach, may it be speedily in our days, and let us say, Amen. Thank you very much for joining me tonight. Hope this made sense, number one, and hope it was maybe, maybe even inspiring as well. Questions, comments? Yes. So, I mean... I feel like this discussion has given some insights into the otherwise not understandable idea of miscarriage. Because there's all a soul, a Jewish soul exists, and it will be in the world. And there is even a measure of life. Right. Yeah. Powerful. But I also, but I would think then that 
there should be some in Judaism, some type of ceremony or marking ritual. Yeah. Yeah. To this, to, to to discuss further. No, it was mentioned that the that that uh, in in a case of miscarriage, based on what we studied tonight, there is still a an element of life. Right, Jewish. Jew, a Jewish soul, a Jewish soul is connected, and and according we had according to yeah, study Torah, and according to the Talmud, to one opinion of the Talmud, it punches its ticket to the world to come. And we explained that not the 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 the, the explanations aren't necessarily sorry, the opinions are next aren't necessarily um, contradictory to each other, but it's rather along points along a continuum of ever increasing elements of of life integration, soul body integration. But it begins with conception. It's a very powerful, very powerful idea. Yep. Questions, comments. Otherwise, other questions, comments. Seems like the is it this is a weak analogy, but like the not want to come out, not to be born. It's like the us in the forty years in the desert. Oh, perfect. I was thinking about going there, but we've gone there so many times, oh. so I don't want to. I don't want to go. No, but you can go there. That's all I have. <laughs> no, no, they always saying that. So I'll mention everybody in line that basically that the, the desire to stay in the womb. Is what what the sin of the spies was according to Chassidus, right? The sin of the spies, the spies, they they and the people they didn't want to leave. It was too good. They had clouds of glory. They had a well. It was great. Imagine you were posted up in Whole Foods. Who would need to leave? I don't. We were just talking about Whole Foods before the class, so it doesn't have to be Whole Foods. It could be Trader Joe's. It could be anything, right? But you're posted up, right? You have what you need. All your needs are taken care of. Boom. You got your mortgages covered. You got your water bill. You got your electricity and gas paid for. And you have Instacart, uh, uh, an open, an open-ended Instacart account. New, no. what's the air, air conditioning? Yeah, air conditioning, air electricity. So, so what's the problem? Where, where's, where's the issue? I don't see a problem here. And then, nope. Now you're on your own. What? I'm on my own. Independence? Yeah, that's real life. Independence, though. How am I going to do it? I, I've given you the power, says God. I've given you the ability. So yes, it might be scary, it might be daunting, it might be frightening on, on some level or whatever. It's, it's vulnerable, sure. But God says, I got you. And more than I got you, you got you. Because I, I gave you what you need. You're good. You have enough strength to do it. By the way, we're all here. Because I'm, I'm looking at you all. We're all here. And we all made that transition. Yes, the matrix. All of us did that. We all crossed over. We all crossed over. And we all had that vulnerable stage. And the first thing we did was we cried. Because it's like, what? This? <laughs> After all that, this? Bright lights in a hospital? Or whatever it is. Right? So like, that's it. This is, this, is, this is what we got. This is what we got. And then on our own, yeah, all right, you still got a little help. Still a little help. But it's new. And everything new is going to be a little, a little shaky. It's going to be, not I'm going to say shaky, a little scary. It's okay. Scary is fine. Scary is okay. Scary is okay because we have the ability. So birth is scary? Sure. But it's okay. So is death. So is death. Yeah. That's powerful. Yeah. So is death. Death is really another stage. It's another opening. There's uh, along those lines, there's a... a fairly well-known uh, parable of twins in twins in utero in the, in the mother's womb by the way we call them womb mates 
Anyway. <laughs> no, everyone's laughing. Just we only hear one. <laughs> everyone's laughing on the inside. Everyone's laughing on the inside. So, yeah, you have roommates. You have twins. And they're discussing what happens, what happens next. And one person, and, and, and one of them is very scared and says, that's it. So birth, it's, we're done. Birth is the end. We're finished. The other one says, no, no, no. Birth is the, the, the next, the next beginning. And they're going back and forth, back and forth, like debating what's going to happen after birth, right? We know what happens. It's the next stage. But you don't know that on the inside. Same thing as this is also on the inside. We don't know what, what's on the other side, but it's the next stage. It's the next stage in the journey. But you're right. Thank you for sharing that. It's scary. It's scary. There's no doubt that, it's, that, it, that it can be scary. I also was, you know, so Jeremiah is a, similar to Moses in the fact that, you know, both were like reluctant. Reluctant, reluctant leaders. Yeah. So God says to him, you got this. I gave you everything from the womb. In other words, your soul. It's not just that you've developed it or, or you, you know, you, it's from, from your original conception, from your, I think he even said before you were, before you were in the womb. Before. before. means the soul, even before it was, it was, it was matched with your body. It was, yeah, it was still, still in the hopper. When it was still like at the manufacturer, it already had, you know, it already had those abilities. Which again, the key point here to me, the key idea is that when you find yourself in a moment in a, in a stage in life or in a moment or whatever it is, and, and things seem daunting, and the question is, how am I going to do this? And, and do I have the ability? Can I do this? And, you know, it's, it, the, what was comfortable is back there, and now, this is, now I'm here. So what do I do? You know, can I do this? If that's the question, the answer is yes. Yes. We have to believe that Hashem has given us the ability to see this through, and it's going to be good. It'll be good. Because we have the strength, we have the ability, and as the Rebbe said, we have each other. Right? Everyone should be on this journey of self-discovery. We should be also looking out for our neighbors. We should be looking out for the one for the one next to us, not just selfishly swimming. So I'll end with this story. It's one of my favorite stories ever in life. One of my favorite stories. It's like probably my top five hundred. I'm kidding. <laughs> kidding. I'm kidding. It's like it's like really top. It's really really high on, high on the list. I can't say the favorite. But it's well, it's well on high on the list. Story goes, it's a real story. Remendel Futterfass, he was a Chabad Hassan who lived in the uh, 1900s. That wasn't that long ago, <laughs> 20 years ago. You know, he lived, uh, he, was, he passed away like a few decades, like uh, 15, 20 years ago. Not that long ago. Um, he was very active in the Chabad underground in the former Soviet Union, and, they, and the, he was arrested by the KGB, and they sent him to, uh, to Siberia for a decade. He survived. And then he made it out, and he lived his life, and he was amazing. He always maintained a positive disposition. So he tells a story. He, he fabrained, and he spoke, and he, he had the most incredible stories. You know, when you're open to life, you have so many stories. When you're closed, no stories. When you're open, stories for days. So this guy, he said, so Remendel, um, so he was uh, speaking with this guy. Oh, he, saw, he saw a Russian that was, in, that was in Siberia with him. He saw this Russian guy just crying. So he goes over to him. He says, tell, tell me why you're crying. What's, what's, like, what's wrong? 
You got a friend. What's, what's wrong? This guy wasn't Jewish. So he said, I miss my horse. Did you miss your horse? He said, you don't understand. He said, I'm a Kazakh. And the Kazakh horses are like, you can't, uh, the Kazakh horses, these are, these are horses. These are horses. It's unbelievable, these horses. Let me tell you about the Kazakh horses. They're strong. They're heroic. They're brave. These horses are amazing. He says to Remendel, you know how we get the horses? How do you get a Kazakh horse? Here's what you do. You take existing horses that you've trained. And you ride deep, 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 deep into the Russian forest to find the most wild pack of horses you can find. These are wild, untrained, unbridled, just raw, powerful Russian horses. You find a pack of wild horses. and You take your horses and you drive them. You push them. You, you push them to the river, to a river that's flowing really fast. And we pushed, we would push the horses to the river and push them into the river. And the weak ones would drown. And it was only the strongest horses that would get swept up in the current. So only the strongest horses who were able to tread the water, survive, and make it to the other side. He says to Rabendal, that still didn't make the Kazakh horse. You know what the Kazakh horse was? It was the horse that after having gone to the other side, went back into the water and pulled out the other horses. That's a Kazakh horse. Remendel said later at a Fabrengen, that's what we're supposed to be. That's a chasir. Not someone who's able to tread water in this river of life. Not even someone who can make it to the other side and be strong. But someone who goes back in and helps someone else. In this journey of life, we don't, we don't journey alone. And if the message that we take from tonight is only I can do it and I can survive and I can thrive because I have the power, a God-given ability to, to stand up to this challenge, to this new, this new challenge at hand, if that's the only message, then I've fallen short. Because the deeper message is that not only do we have an obligation to ourselves, we have an obligation to the other. To share that, to inspire the other person as well, so that they can be successful in their mission. So let's do this. Let's recognize our strength. Let's recognize the strength and the ability of the other one. Let's share this information. This information. <laughs> Send an email. No, share the inspiration with someone else. L'chaim. I actually have L'chaim. L'chaim, cheers. Happy birthday, Donna. And uh, we'll, we'll let everyone... Wish you happy birthday. Yom Hulad Sameach, Shubiyashnas Brachavatzlacha, a year of blessing and success. L'chaim. Happy birthday. Thank you, Donna. From, Donna. From one Donna to another. Donna, she can recognize your voice. See that? See that? Unbelievable. Thanks. Happy birthday, Donna. Thank you. The other Donna. That's a Dinamaka. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> amazing, amazing. Beautiful. All right, guys. We'll see you soon. Have a good night. Lila Tov. See you guys. Take care. Bye.
Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. As always, you can find us online at intownjewishacademy.org and on YouTube at Intown Jewish Academy. New episodes of the podcast come out a few times a week. If you don't want to miss a single episode, then hit the subscribe button. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. It means a lot to me and it helps other people find the podcast. Thanks so much for listening and I hope you have a wonderful day.